Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We are getting right down to the wire. Next Tuesday is the election, although, you know, odds are we probably won't know the outcome for a few days. So, you know, share that thought. But it is too late to get your ballot in the mail, thanks to Louis DeJoy and Donald Trump. So be sure that if you have not yet turned in your ballot, that you do so physically. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is with us, taking your calls. She is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She represents the 7th District of the great state of Washington in the U.S. House of Representatives. Therefore, her website is jayapal, J-A-Y-A-P-A-L.house.gov, and you can tweet her at Rep Jayapal. Representative Jayapal, welcome back to the program. So glad to have you with us. I'm curious what's at the top of your list of things that we should all be thinking about and talking about today. we got to focus on the election. We have to get... Donald Trump out of the White House. We've got to ditch Mitch. We've got to get a more progressive House in because we have massive crises in front of us. Everything from COVID relief, health care, you know, the rising surge in cases, even here in Washington, we've handled it very well. But this virus is very persistent. We knew it was going to come back and keep coming back and forth on us. And so we've got to deal with the virus. We've got to get economic relief. And it's got to be at the scale of this crisis. And then there's just so much damage to undo from this president who on every level has violated justice, democracy, and our constitution. So I'm thinking about, what is it, five days now from the election, but then we're also planning for how we make sure we get the most substantial set of structural reforms through so that we are never, ever in not only the position we're in with COVID, but the position we were in before COVID hit that made us so much more vulnerable on the economic and the health and really on the racial justice fronts. You are one of the authors or co-authors of the Medicare for All legislation in the House of Representatives and have been a champion of this for a long, long time. I have so much admiration and respect for you and and everybody else in the Progressive Caucus, but in particular, you've been a real leader in this. The study out of Indonesia showed that when they brought free health care to poor Indonesian communities, it virtually stopped the illegal logging of the rainforest 
because these people were basically vandalizing the forest in order to get money to pay for their own health care. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing stuff. I mean, what are the prospects for Medicare for all in the United States? We've got, a, you know, a, a pandemic. We've got 200 plus thousand people dead. We've got 8 million, 9 million people infected. It seems like if ever there was a time, it's now. That's absolutely right. And I can't wait to see that study. I lived in Indonesia for 10 years, so I actually know that area very, very well. But this is the thing about healthcare, Tom. You know, I don't think that people understand always how absolutely essential healthcare is to everything else you're doing. If you are not healthy, you can't get a decent job and keep a decent job and not have to worry. You can't take care of your kids. Your economic prospects are dim. You can't get the treatment you need, the drugs you need. And so I really think that's why we talk about healthcare as a human right. You know, this is not something just for the privileged few. Without healthcare, you have nothing else. And so this is, you know, I think this moment is our moment. Look, we, as much as both Republicans and some Democrats, unfortunately, have chosen to attack healthcare, that is the voice of the pharmaceutical drug companies and the private insurance companies that don't want anything to change because they've got a lot at stake. They've made a huge amount of profits, profits that have only gone up, by the way, during COVID-19. And so we have to just understand that the American people are with us in poll after poll, study after study, in spite of hundreds of millions of dollars coming in to attack Medicare for all. It is a very resilient idea. And it is winning even in blue states. We saw that blue districts, I should say. We saw that last cycle in 2018 when people like Katie Porter and Mike Levin and so many others ran and won on Medicare for All. We're seeing it this cycle. Hopefully we will win these seats with people like Cara Eastman, Dana Balter, Mike Siegel, so many others, Julie Oliver, so many others that are running on Medicare for All in extremely tough Republican districts. And just the other day, a Republican constituent wrote to me, and this is reminding me, I need to write him back. I was so excited to get his email. And he said he thinks the Republican Party leaders are all wrong in attacking Medicare for all. He's a Republican with conservative ideals. But the idea that everyone should be able to afford health care and that the government should provide it in a single payer system is exactly what he thinks needs to happen. And for small businesses, which he talked about, this is critical. We're hampering and hamstringing small businesses. So what's the prospect? I was the co-chair of the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force on Healthcare. Senator Sanders asked me to do that. I said to him, Bernie, and, you know, he got a start on your show in many ways, Tom, but I said to him, you know, mm-hmm. we are not going to turn Biden into Bernie Sanders. We're not going to get Medicare for all from Joe Biden because his stake in the sand, if you will, his legacy is the Affordable Care Act. But I do believe we can get significant foundational principles of Medicare for all into the Biden platform. And that is what we did. I considered those negotiated agreements for the Biden campaign the floor. I told the vice president, I'm never going to stop pushing for Medicare for all. But we did get some very critical things. First of all, pharmaceutical drug pricing, an aggressive plan, even better than what we were able to get in the House that we negotiated. My co-chair, Mark Pocan, and I and others negotiated in H.R. 3. What we got in the Biden platform is even better. And so we will literally be able to say no American will pay more for their pharmaceutical drugs than in any other country. That's first. Secondly, we untethered health care from jobs. 
We didn't do it the way I would like to do it by making sure that there is no private insurance policies with employers, that everyone is on Medicare for All. But what we were able to get is a commitment that, number one, employers would have to offer a government plan as one of their options. And number two, if anybody gets unemployed, is unemployed, as happened to 27 million Americans during this COVID crisis, that they would automatically be put onto a government plan. Number three, lowering the Medicare age. I would like to lower it to 55. We got lowering it to 60. That's a beginning. I would like to make sure we're covering all kids. And the Biden plan does that somewhat through their subsidies. But there's more to do. And I think we'll be able to really push for this, Tom, in the next Congress, if we are able to take back the Senate and the White House and get a more progressive House elected. Mike in Seattle, you are on the air with Representative Jackal. Hi, Representative Jayapal. You're my representative. I'm in the 34th LD in West Seattle. So isn't the most important date for this election really when states do the voter certification and not the day of the tally that everybody reports on? Mike, first of all, that's my LD. So yay, West Seattle. Every day in this election is going to be important because we actually don't know what dates different states are going to do their final tallies. And so this is an unprecedented time. We even saw, even though we won the Pennsylvania Supreme Court case, what troubles me about that is it leaves open the possibility that the Supreme Court could still make a decision on ballots that come in after Election Day. And that decision could come after Election Day, which to me seems absolutely Uh, unjust. And so, you know, we are still telling voters in Pennsylvania, for example, do not trust the mail at this point. Please go to a ballot box, go to your government office and put your ballot in a verified ballot box or vote in person safely with a mask. Because I see the Republican Party, the Trump administration using shenanigans of legal suits all the way up to the election and then, of course, after. So I don't know what the final date is, because even with those final tallies, there are things we have heard of afoot to challenge even those final tallies. So I would say let's focus on now in the election. Let's get our ballots in, in person or in a ballot box, if at all possible. And I think that is, you know, we're just going to have to take this one step at a time, but prepare ourselves for what might come. Jessica in Chicago watching Free Speech TV. Yes, I voted in person and I wish I hadn't. The machines, the screens print out, you hand in a barcode. So after I came home, I Googled the machine I voted on and the barcode, and they can be hacked in too easily, and the barcode can be changed. Yeah, Jessica, this is really important. I mean, we hope that states can, that you can get a copy, a printout of your ballot and exactly how you voted, because I think we are worried about some election machines and foolery that can happen there. You know, in the state of Washington, in Oregon and Colorado, where we have mail-in ballots, it's a really good way you can track whether your ballot's been counted. There's a paper trail of those ballots. I mean, there's a lot of things in place. And unfortunately, we haven't updated the systems of all of the states as we move to this mail-in voting. So I would just say, 
I believe you can always call your county to see what your ballot said and how it was counted or tracked. And I believe that you have access to that information, even in a state like yours. That's great. And John in Austin, Texas, you are on the air with Representative Jayapal. How you doing, guys? I'd like to first say thanks for everything that you guys do. My question revolves around voting. Every four years and sometimes every two years, depending on the election, you know, there are long lines because they reduce voting machines. There's all kinds of different chicanery going on in a lot of states. So my question would be, is there a way or is there a possibility of somebody can introduce some legislation that would strengthen the federal elections so that everybody who is eligible to vote can vote? during the elections, that there's no chicanery and uh, taking down machines to one per each county and stuff like that. Because it seems like every year or every election that there's always this, you know, uh, suppression of the vote. And just like we're having now, can there be some type of guidelines put in place so that everybody can vote every single election? Yeah, this is a really important question. And actually, I sit on the Judiciary Committee, John, and we have over and over again for the last four years been trying to move our legislation, not only the Voting Rights Advancement Act, but also the For the People Act and another piece of legislation, the Voter Election Integrity Act, I think it's called, all of which is designed to address exactly what you're talking about. The Trump administration has deliberately undermined elections, but it was already not up to where it should have been in terms of investment even before that. And so what we need to do is put um, a, a clean set of guidelines in place for states across the country. I mean, elections are run by states. However, the federal government can give money to ensure election security. In my mind, that's part of intelligence, right? It's part of FBI. Um, we've questioned Director Christopher Wray on this when he was before us in the Judiciary Committee. And so we need to make sure that those very clear guidelines are in place, that we vet appropriately the makers of these machines. I'm very troubled by the fact that there are people who make ballots or who make machines that are, you know, clear partisan entities. And we don't know, are they doing the right thing or not? We've seen instances where that's been a problem. And number three, we need to give money to the states to dramatically update their election um, systems because of cyber attacks and other things that we know have been happening. Now, separate from all of that, there's making sure that we don't have foreign interference in our elections. Um, but a lot of that comes down to the cybersecurity that is not in place in many systems across the country. So we have proposed all of that legislation. The Republicans have refused to move on any of it, even though the FBI and others the Department of Justice has said that this is a serious threat to our uh, democracy and to our national security. Representative Jayapal, if I could add on a question to that, the Supreme Court ruled that we have an absolute right to buy and own a gun. And therefore, if the government wants to prevent you or me or anybody else from buying a gun, they actually have to go to court and prove their case that we shouldn't be able to buy a gun because it's a right, not a privilege. Voting, the Supreme Court ruled back in the 2000 Bush v. Gore, is a privilege, not a right. And so the government can take that away from us anytime we want, and then we have to go to court and demand it back, as we're seeing the NAACP suing all over the country. You know, Wouldn't establishing an absolute right to vote, which that phrase, right to vote, appears four times in the Constitution. It's, it's in the preamble and the black law body of the Motor Voter Act of 1993, I think it is, maybe 97. 
it's never been adjudicated and it's rarely recognized. Wouldn't that be a really important first step? That's a really interesting point. I mean, I guess I have always felt like the right to vote is enshrined in our Constitution. But you're right. The Supreme Court has been interpreting that in a very different way. And so um, I'm going to look into that, Tom. But I think that that could be a very simple thing. It may already be in the Voting Rights Act. I need to go back and look. Um, But if not, I think that that is a very important thing to make it clear to the Supreme Court that this is a right and not a privilege. You can't have a democracy without everyone being able to cast a vote. And so I think that that is um, that that is a really important point and a very frustrating given, you know, the hypocrisy of the, the way that the court rules on different things that they that have now become so partisan. It reminds me of the old uh, Eve of Destruction song back in the 60s. You may not be old enough to remember this, but it was you're old enough to kill, but not for voting was the phrase. And that got a yeah. constitutional amendment pushed through Congress and the states in less than four months to lower the voting age to 18. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, I think what's also crazy about all of this is that this wasn't a partisan thing the way it is today. I mean, in our state, I wrote the automatic voter registration bill. It passed after I left the Senate. But I had two Republican secretaries of state saying, yes, we should do this. This makes sense. We should make sure that everybody, uh, you know, that we make it as easy as possible for people to vote. This is fundamental to democracy. Right. Amen. Tom Harbin here with you. We're doing a national town hall meeting today with the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Representative Pramila Jayapal of the 7th District of Washington State in the U.S. House of Representatives. And Dee in Chicago, you're on the air with Representative Jayapal. Good morning, Representative Jayapal and Tom. Thank you for great works. Representative, is there a way to change the rules or the laws in terms of senators being able to hold up everything? Mitch McConnell has held us hostage. I don't understand how just that person in the Senate can hold up over 300 wonderful laws that you guys have passed. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I really think we need reforms to our courts. I think we need reforms to our Senate. Um, I just believe that the way that these rules have been used are completely absurd and Republicans have no shame. Um, You know, there was a process that used to be it's called the blue slip process for for um, judges. And if a home state senator put down a blue slip, the 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 sort of idea was that you wouldn't move forward. Republicans have done away with that completely. And I think what happens when Democrats get in, we say, well, we really want to do things the right way. We want to go back to a time when there was bipartisanship. And of course, we all want to see the country heal after this racist, xenophobic, constitutional destroying president and the party that has enabled him. But we are going to have to put in place um, different kinds of structures that allow us to pass critical bills the way that Republicans have done with no shame whatsoever. So, you know, we talk about filibuster reform. I said a long time ago that I was for filibuster reform because Republicans have already done that. They've already reformed the filibuster for things like their uh, $2 trillion tax cut. Right. And so we've got to make sure that we are really thinking about structural reforms. And that will include to the Senate and to our entire judicial system, not just the Supreme Court. But remember that Donald Trump has made hundreds of appointments um, to lower courts with judges that have been rated as unqualified. They are pure partisan ideologists. 
Um, they are literally have no relevant experience to being a judge and no interest in actually administering justice. So we have a lot of work to do, and I hope Democrats um, take it seriously. I'm going to be pushing for that from the Progressive Caucus side, but we need the entire movement across the country to be pushing to say, yeah, let's restore balance, because you want to talk about packing the courts. The Republicans have already packed the courts, and um, we are just going to have to figure out how to bring balance back into all of those structures, including the Senate. Charles in Jacksonville, Florida. You're on the air with Representative Jayapal. In the immigration, future immigration legislation, could you include a clause that any undocumented individual that serves four years in the U.S. military and is discharged honorably is granted the right to citizenship if they so request it? Yeah, actually, thank you for that question, Charles. It already exists that if you go into service, you are supposed to have the promise of citizenship. And that is something that the Trump administration has gone back on. They have found other ways to try to deport people. They have deported the living, the surviving spouses and family of people who have served in the military, thinking that they were going to have the promise of that citizenship. And then they're killed protecting our country and standing up for our country. And then the U.S. government under the Trump administration has deported those individuals. We already had that in place. It just has been violated and withdrawn by the Trump administration. We will make sure that when Democrats take back the presidency and hopefully the Senate, that we pass true comprehensive immigration reform that includes our veterans, that includes our DACA recipients, that includes families that want to be kept together. There is a report that's going to be released today that just preview it. I hope this is okay for me to do this. I know it's coming out later today. It's going to say that half a million, half a million children were held in detention. That is both unaccompanied minors that came across the border and those that came with their families. But almost half a million were held in detention, 40% for more than 72 hours. This is a travesty wow. beyond travesties. So we are going to have to um, dramatically reform our immigration system, including our detention system. I have a bill called the Dignity for Detained Immigrants Act that gets rid of private for-profit prisons. Nobody should be making a profit on incarcerating immigrants. And by the way, that's your taxpayer dollars that are being used for that. And we could take care of folks with alternatives to detention. People do not need to be incarcerated when they're just waiting for a bond hearing or waiting for their papers to go through, coming through as asylees or refugees. So there's a lot of work we have to do. You know I'm passionate about this issue, been an organizer on it for 15 years, so it's hard for me not to just... What we've done to immigrants in this country is so grotesque. Caging of kids is just unbearable to me to think about the long-term irreversible damage that we have done to almost half a million kids. That's mind-boggling. Gerald in San Diego, California. You're on the air with Representative Jayapal. Representative Jayapal, I love you so much. I think you're awesome. I come from a time where it was a death sentence politically to say that you are progressive, and Tom's talked about this a lot. That has changed dramatically. How many members of the CPC caucus are just using the moniker of progressive? to get elected, and how does this affect the ability to present a united front and building a coalition? Because I don't yeah. hear from many of them like I hear from you. 
Yeah, well, you know, I'm the elected co-chair, so obviously you probably hear from me more in terms of these progressive ideals. But look, we have grown rapidly when the CPC was formed several decades ago by Bernie Sanders, um, Pete DeFazio, Maxine Waters, and some others. It was more of a social club. It was a place where people could come and talk about progressive ideals, but there weren't that many people talking about it, as you say. And over the years, we have continued to strengthen the CPC. Keith Ellison and Raul Grijalva were key to kind of bringing some structures back in during the last governing moment. Mark Pocan, my my fantastic co-chair, and I have really continued to bring structure. And we are actually in the process right now, you may have read, of trying to pass a significant reforms package that is about bringing a little bit more structure, allowing the CPC to be more effective, more nimble, and also holding people accountable to some extent if you want to say that you're progressive. So we have a number of proposals that are out there. And they're everything from minimum requirements for attendance in our meetings, responding to whip counts, but also the ability to make the CPC more member driven so that any member could seek the CPC to take a position on a piece of legislation that's coming to the floor. We already have a process for endorsement of bills. This is different. If there's a piece of legislation on the floor or an amendment, the CPC could take a position as long as two-thirds of our members support that position. But then two-thirds of the time, you would actually need to vote with the caucus position. So, you know, it's not inflexible for different districts across the country. I mean, we do have people that run as progressives in swing districts, God bless them, and they do have more challenges than some of us that are in blue districts. So we want to recognize that. But we also want there to be accountability, more member-driven nature, and participation at the end of the day. So, you know, I hope that these reforms will go through. I'm looking forward to having the CPC. It's really important that we prepare for this governing moment. And the progressive movement and the progressive caucus inside is going to be absolutely critical to making sure that we get the kinds of bold structural changes that we've been advocating for. I think Tom has heard me say before that My definition of a progressive is just that we are the first to the best and most just ideas. And then everyone else has to run to catch up with us because we build the movement that changes what is seen as possible. So 10 years ago when I was on the committee that helped make Seattle the first major city to pass a $15 minimum wage, it was not mainstream to talk about a $15 minimum wage. Now, the entire House of, you know, the House of Representatives and almost the entire Democratic caucus passed the Raise the Wage Act last year to raise the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage to 15. So we know what it's like to build a movement and to be perhaps ahead of our time in some ways. But we've got to get money out of politics. We've got to get people working for their people if we're going to really have the kind of justice that we deserve in America. Amen. Janet in Mount Vernon, Washington, you're on the air with Representative Jayapal. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Representative Jayapal. Karl Rove has apparently been brought on to do all sorts of evil things to make sure the Republicans win this election. And my question for you is, with all of the terrible things that are going on that are getting no attention, like the NOAA, the head of NOAA being, those heads being removed and replaced with political hacks, and the dismantlement of the civil service hierarchy, where's Bill Barr? Do you have any idea? Because it seems to me like he's a 
busy working to dismantle things as much as he can before hopefully a blue wave. And I pray, you have to understand, I, and I can't be alone, I, I wake up in the middle of the night and I am worried. I am worried, and, and believe me, we, have, we've, we are trying to flip that Senate. If I get a request for, you know, if my husband and I get a request for a Democratic Senate, someone running against a Republican, we send them money. Yeah, no, I, I hear the anxiety, Janet, and that's why, for anyone that's listening, if you have time between now and the election, go to PramillaForCongress.com. We are running phone banks into Pennsylvania, a very critical state and also into Washington 10, another critical race that we need a progressive to win. And we have trained over 550 volunteers in deep canvassing training. At this point, it's GOTV. But, you know, we've made over 125,000 phone calls. Don't leave anything on the table. We really need to be able to wake up the morning after the election and say, we did, each one of us did everything possible to win this election. And I believe that fundamentally I feel qualitatively different this time than I did in 2016. We're not leaving anything on the table. You know, I think that Bill Barr, you've probably seen me questioning Bill Barr. I just think he is not an attorney general for the country. He is the, per the president's personal attorney. He does nothing to uphold the Constitution. In fact, he tears it down. When I questioned him, he lied to me under oath in saying that he didn't know anything about what was happening in Michigan and the protesters that were at the state capitol, right-wing protesters with assault rifles and swastikas and a brown-haired doll that was supposed to represent Gretchen Whitmer. Three of those protesters that were at the Michigan capitol when the attorney general said he didn't know anything about it were actually three of the people that were arrested in the plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, and yet he told me he didn't know anything about it. What he focuses on is the ridiculousness. Rep. Jayapal, I'm sorry, we're, we're out of time here. Yeah, but thank sorry. you. You're listening thank you. That's okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu 
slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is pocan, P-O-C-A-N, dot house, dot gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Congressman Pocan, welcome back. What's at the top of your list of things that you want to share with us today? Next time we talk, the election is going to be done, we hope. <laughs> this is just the final stretch. The good news is it does look like much of the polling has been holding consistent and a few more states might be on the map even than we thought but polls don't vote people vote this is the final crunch time for anyone who cares about the election to make sure they're working towards getting people to vote hopefully early where they can still vote early and if not have a plan for election day but uh, there's well pretty much everything riding on the election yeah and let me add as eric holder tweeted out yesterday it's too late to mail your ballot now I guess the national average for crosstown mail in the United States, which throughout my lifetime has always been a day or two, is now six days. Yeah. So it's too late to mail your ballot. So figure out a way to get so it. You can just drop person. it off yeah, at your city, village, or town hall. Uh, it's just like voting, but you can drop it off there. You know, we still encourage people to vote early if you can in your area, you know, because who knows what the conditions could be even a week from now. You know, in Wisconsin yesterday, Tom, um, these are staggering numbers. We had 5,200 COVID cases, a 32% positivity rate for people being tested for COVID and 64 deaths, just in our state of 1.6% of the national population. So we're often number two behind California for number of cases nationally, and California is 10 times our size. So in states like ours, which is a swing state, uh, we have to make sure we get voters out. You know, the safest thing people can do is vote early with their, their mask, bring their own pen, bring some hand sanitizer, but you can have more control than if you wait a very, very long line on the third, potentially. So we're encouraging people to do that. But if people are insistent on voting on election day, just make sure you have a plan to do that. And if you bring your own pen, bring a black one or a very, very dark blue one. Yes. Typically, those are the only ones that are allowed. Betsy in Madison, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you, Congressman Pocan, for what you've done for Wisconsin. However, our governor is sideswiped by our legislature here and that we're dealing with our COVID. And I would like to know how we can get a mass mandate and because our COVID is spiking. I have to say I'm afraid because I have health issues with people not doing what they need to do to wear the mask and take this virus seriously. Thank you, Betsy. Yeah, thank you, Betsy. First of all, you're a constituent. I want to say thank you for calling in today. We appreciate that. 
you know, the mask mandate is in place. That one, even though there was a court challenge, the court took down the challenge to it. What the governor has lost right now because of a court challenge, and we're been, I think by Monday, Friday or Monday of this week, we should have an update on it, is whether or not you could have only 25% occupancy in like restaurants and bars and places because of our exploding COVID numbers. And Tom, I would argue we have the worst in the country. I haven't looked today, but yesterday, our eight congressional districts are in the 16 worst congressional districts in the country for COVID. So the entire wow. state is in the top 16 of 435 congressional districts. You know, honestly, I think everyone can do more. I think the governor should do a major address to the people of Wisconsin and show the urgency that we need to show right now, because this has been going on for four or five weeks. These numbers are going the wrong direction. We need to shake people up. We need to get former Governor Tommy Thompson, who I think would do this, to speak out as well as a Republican, say, you know, okay, as Republicans, you should still wear a mask. We need to do a whole lot more than we are doing. The legislature absolutely has been a problem. There are the, the Republican legislature and not allowing the governor to do many of the things he wanted to. We've had some outside lawsuits, but even Democrats can do more. So I'm not cutting anyone slack. When we have the numbers that we have in Wisconsin, we all need to figure out what we can do more. And you're right, Betsy. Um, you know, we need to have people wearing the mask because that is the order in the state, but it's not being enforced in all parts of the state. And our most red parts of the state, the most Republican parts of the state, have the highest COVID numbers right now. Uh, Tom, uh, I believe I just read the president's going to Green Bay, Wisconsin on Friday. The COVID positivity rate for people getting tested in Green Bay uh, right now is 45 percent. This is a staggering number. And to have a super spreader event in middle of a place where almost half of the people who get tested are testing positive for COVID uh, is criminal. And I would hope uh, that some law enforcement might figure out a way to arrest him on his way to the actual uh, super spreader event. When the Koch brothers and their network decided to make Scott Walker their big experiment uh, back in 2008, mm-hmm. I think it was, they invested millions, probably tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in Wisconsin and built out this huge infrastructure. I'm on the email list for FreedomWorks and a bunch of these other groups mm-hmm. that, that the Koch network historically have supported or even created. And they have been trashing masks and saying that it's the opposite of freedom and that we need to open the economy um, going all the way back to mid-April. Do you think because so many people in Wisconsin were targeted by these folks that they're now on these lists and they're now you know, locked into these Facebook groups that they're believing this stuff that masks don't work, et cetera? Absolutely. And, you know, then we're finding then our hospitals are at 85 percent capacity. We had to have a field hospital for overflow. So Friday, there was a congressional briefing, House and Senate for Democrats and Republicans, about 25, 30 members of the House and the Senate were on it. It was with Dr. Fauci, uh, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, and then some doctors that are specialists in pulmonary, cardiac and neurological sciences. And the information they gave us, there's been a few articles about this, but they gave it to us in a way that was Pretty scary, Tom, uh, which is that of people uh, they're finding who have COVID positive and were symptomatic, 35% of them are seeming to have longer term consequences that are either pulmonary, cardiac, or neurological in nature. And we have to do more studying on this. But for example, the trypanins, I think it is, is what it's called. When you have a heart attack, what gets triggered that they know you had a heart attack. 
people are having those triggered, even though they're not having a heart attack, but their heart is being attacked by the virus. And they're not sure what the long-term implications of that. We already knew that about the lungs. We had heard some stories. But also there's a brain fog that people are having, 35% of people who've been symptomatic. So we may have a whole lot more to deal with with this disease for a long time, likely as pre-existing conditions for people. And I think when the question was asked, what did the president say? Is he even informed and what did he say? Dr. Fauci asked, he said, let me answer that. No, he hasn't. So I think the frustration is the president's not coming to the task force meetings. But this is something that I think is pretty damning, and we need to get that information out. Amen. Eddie in Agra, Kansas, you are on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. I was just getting ready to go to town to vote, and I wondered what you think here, because uh, here's to me, what do you think when the Republicans want to cut our Social Security and, uh, you know, how many people are on Social Security, like me, totally depending on it, and uh, for my children, the uh, the care, the Republicans are wanting to totally destroy the health care, but every time we ask them for their plan, they have none. Does Democrats really have something that they can do against this, or is all we can do vote? You know, at this point, what we can do is vote, because if we get a different president and a different Senate and maintain the House, which we're assuming will happen, uh, we have the ability to move forward on, on health care and on Social Security. And the president or vice president has said that he would add a public option to the Affordable Care Act. He would lower the buy-in for Medicare for people down to 60. And he has talked about a number of measures around Social Security that would shore it up and hopefully uh, provide additional help for people. So, you know, I think that's the best answer we have at this point. There's no way, I think, that Donald Trump and certainly Mitch McConnell, who hasn't passed anything we've sent to him practically, that they're going to do anything that would make you or I happy in the coming months. So it's all about election day. And if you want to see uh, Social Security showing up and, and have some better way of doing that, if you want to have health care access to more people so that more people can be covered, especially after watching what we do with COVID, it's pretty simple. You have to make sure you do exactly what you're doing, which is going to vote right now. Rich in Indianapolis, Indiana, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I'm formerly from Philly and formerly of West Philly. And I know all about Cobbs Creek as the neighborhood where Philadelphia police dropped a bomb on move. And here's this neighborhood with its resilience and endurance, but scars of municipal bad actors on it still. And I wanted to offer you the question, please. What can we do about the current difficulties that are showing up with, as we say, defund police? We don't mean inability to act. We're talking about redefining. We're talking about other aspects, other facets of municipal care for those in need. The man that was killed was having a mental health crisis. And there's this terrible excuse that, well, we just didn't have enough money for those guys to have tasers. And, you know, it's like, no, uh -uh, that that really doesn't pass. So can you offer some ideas that uh, redefine how the authoritarian state is going to be kinder and gentler (laughs) to uh, our humanity. That was Walter Wallace Jr. is the guy who was killed by the police when he was having a mental health crisis. We've passed a bill in the House that we worked with all the national civil rights groups on that does things like stopping chokeholds. It has a database for officers that are violating people's human rights and, and who are racist in actions. It had a lot of provisions in there. And, you know, I think that's something that is going to be relatively easy to move forward in a new Congress with a new president. 
because I heard the difference in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which happens to be my hometown, where we had this shooting occur that saw the difference between what Donald Trump said and what Joe Biden said. And I think we can get those measures in place and we need to do additional measures. But that was a good comprehensive first start. And I think there's a lot of potential for a bill like that. So that's really, I think, what we need more than anything, Rich, is to you know put that out there and then just figure out how to change this culture. I mean, I still think you know having some uniform training for police officers makes a hell of a lot of sense. You know, you have to, to be a truck driver, you have to pass a uniform test. Why wouldn't you to be a police officer? And I think there's some other things we could still address But the good news is thinking people understand what we're trying to do. These final folks that are with Trump that are still putting out this other bin that's out there. But, you know, luckily that number is growing smaller every day, both by support and unfortunately through COVID. In Michael Moore's movie, Where to Invade Next, which I think is his best movie ever, Mm -hmm. um, he visits Norway and looks at their prison system. They're completely committed to rehabilitation. That's the direction we need to be moving, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, prison reform, we've actually seen some states moving forward on that. We had one small bill at the federal prison level that Donald Trump acts like was the biggest thing in the world. But let's not wait till we get to the prison system. Let's do it actually in our community-based corrections and let's use other agencies than police. And there's a whole lot, I think, that we can do differently. Robert in Omaha, Nebraska, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. If the Democrats win... Do they have any hope of getting anything passed or if they're basically like no hope? Depends on the election, right? If we get the majority, which I think there's a decent chance right now if people get out and vote, we can get the majority in the Senate. I think they have to look at their rules. And you know, after watching Mitch McConnell and how he's operated, there have been no rules in the Senate. So I don't think we should be you know, having tea and crumpets in our politeness and try to decide that somehow we're going to use the current rules exactly as they are in order to try to move into a governing moment. And this is a time for us to take uh, it very seriously. And I hope that Chuck Schumer will do just that. And I hope that Democratic senators will do just that. And honestly, I would add any Democratic senator that doesn't want to get something done should probably be planning their final days in the Senate, because this is moment we're going into that we need to have action, get things done. And if anyone tries to hold us up for some parochial or financial or other reason, I'm over them. And I hope that we are as a society, too. Antonio in Santana, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. What would it take? I mean, and on the debate, Trump's mentioned socialized medicine. I mean, it's a wonderful idea. What would it take for the United States to go that route? And I don't believe in socialism. I don't. But when it comes to health, I think any government should provide accessible health for all. Thank you. Antonio, great point. In fact, there's a thing called PolitiFact out there. They judge politicians on what we say, if it's correct or not. Generally, we're not wild when we get a call from them. And one of their rare truths was when I said that we are the only industrialized nation on the planet that doesn't have universal health care. And it was a true. So really, we are just significantly behind where we should be as a country. And I think COVID has shown where that's at. So the good news, Antonio, is the public's already there. But we have to have it come up from the grassroots. We have to have people demanding of their elected officials healthcare system that works for absolutely everyone, like a Medicare for all system. Medicare is one of the most popular federal programs we have. There's no reason we couldn't have it for every single individual and be like all the other industrialized countries. But it's a matter of us demanding it 
you know, I really believe in the, the saying, if the people lead, eventually the leaders will follow. I don't find often the elected leaders, and I'm waving my fingers as I say that word, first to do things. So we have to make them. And I think that we just have to help build that movement in the coming years. But I think we're going to get there. There's no question. We're not going to be the only outlier without a logical way of having health care for its citizens. It's just going to take some real organizing grassroots work. And you're completely right, Antonio. We will get there. We're going to get there. Paul in Lucerne, California, you are on the air with Congressman Pokin. Communities have checked out different justice practices. New Jersey did restorative justice, worked really awesome. But that's not why I called. I called about using the tax code to force corporations and rich people to redirect their wealth. And how you do that is by raising the top marginal tax rate to at least 50%. And when you do that, if you make over $3 million, you have to give up 50% of that $3 million. I think it'd be best if it was 70%. That's what Franklin Roosevelt did. And, you know, FDR was more of a centrist than Joe was. But the Times forced him to be the progressive champion we all know and love. And the people forced him to do that. And we have the people power right now. Are we going to be able to use the tax code to force people to redirect their wealth? Yeah, Paul, I, I absolutely think that's going to be on the table because you've heard so many people talk about it this past year. We know that, you know, during the Trump administration, they did one of the, the largest tax cut in history. 85, 86 percent of that money went to the top one percent in a couple of years. That's not tax reform. That's tax deform, clearly for the wealthiest, for the richest and the people who can afford to belong to Mar-a-Lago, but not uh, really for the rest of us. So I think there's a lot of opportunities, both on the corporate tax rate, on the individual rate side. Clearly, you've seen lots of people talking about this year, it's going to be part of the discussion going into the 117th Congress. Jerry in Aurora, Colorado, you're on the air with Congressman Pokian. Well, the Democrats, are they prepared to file lawsuits in the states that will not count the provisional ballots? Everyone who has concerns about Election Day, just know that for months and months and months, there have been a lot of our national progressive groups, some of the best attorneys in the country, the party, everyone thinking through every scenario. I think everything will be done should Donald Trump try to get away with things. However, and I've said this every week probably for about two months or maybe three months in a row, any angst or anxiety you have, because you can't affect that personally, but what you can affect is getting out everyone that we can possibly get out to vote. So if you have any angst over what can happen on Election Day, there are plenty of people that are all ready for what's going to happen on that. But what you can do right now in the next days remaining till next Tuesday is get involved and do everything you can to get people out to vote. And if you do that, I think uh, we can have a really big result that day. And if we have a big result on Election Day, all of the scenarios that people are worried about are never going to happen. So the most direct impact you can have on it is to just take some time and sign up for some shifts and get people to vote in your area. And by doing that, I think we can all be more assured that there won't be any problems on election night. I, that's my strongest advice I can possibly give, especially less than a week before the election. Rob in Colorado Springs, Colorado, you're on the air with Congressman Pokin. When I'm on jury duty, the judge issues a series of rules or instructions, and we have to follow by them. Otherwise, we're held under contempt of court. Since the senators all came out before Judge Roberts gave them the instructions and said no matter what happened, they were going to vote to acquit Donald Trump, should they not all be held under contempt of court charges? 
I'll tell you, Rob, I'm not going to answer the question the way you want it, but let me answer it this way. The president's been impeached, right? He was impeached by the House of Representatives. He wrote down in history, uh, not only as a failure as a president, the worst president that's ever been in the history of this country, an experiment that people will regret for decades to come, but also he will go down as an impeached president because that's what the House did. My bigger concern is that we make sure that for the future, for any president, Democrat, Republican, other political party that could ever emerge, that you can't abuse the process and not have people go as witnesses and not go forward, not get the information that the American people deserve for a process. That we have to correct. And I think right now there are a number of measures introduced in Congress to do just that. And we're going to continue to push that. And we hope that in the next administration we go after any crimes or misdeeds that did happen by this administration, because it's really about the future of the country, not just about Donald Trump. It's about the future of the country that no other president do these actions. So I'm not going to kind of re- litigate any aspect of it. The president was impeached and he will go down in history that way. But we do need to make sure that future presidents aren't able to do what Donald Trump did, because unfortunately, too many good people, so to speak, in his own party allowed that to happen. My read of pardon power says that the pardon power cannot be used during times of impeachment. Now, that hasn't been processed by the Supreme Court. But are you hearing anything from your colleagues about trying to impeach Trump again to prevent him from pardoning people and maybe to highlight some of his other crimes? Honestly, I would say 95% of our conversation, not 90, that's not fair, but maybe 80% of our conversations these days are trying to get another COVID bill done for the American people. And then the rest is around the election. You know, maybe after the election, when people start doing those final plans, it may come up. But right now, we've been pretty laser focused on trying to get a COVID bill to help so many people that need help. Yeah, because he's going to have 77 days. You know, it's, he can do a lot of damage. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Mark in San Francisco, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, Congressman and Tom, what about a tax incentive or a subsidy from the government for people that want to put solar panels on their roofs or go to green energy? Absolutely, Mark. In fact, you should be doing that at the state levels. We should do it at the federal level. The more we can incentivize the use, the more we can have production done here in the United States and have those jobs here. In fact, I think any way that we can try to target those incentives to panels and windmill blades and uh, biomass that's made in the United States, that's even better. So, you know, I'm with you, Mark. I think that's always been something uh, that we've had in tax code. We wanted to have that renewed for a longer period of time federally, but that's exactly the direction we should be going. Leslie in Central Square, New York, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I stopped donating to the Democratic Party about two or three years ago because my money didn't go to you guys, progressives. The Democratic Party is a lot of different things that people see. Is it your local party? Is it your state party? Are you talking about the DNC? What exactly are you talking about? Because like on congressional races, there's a different arm of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee that spends races. So that's not the DNC. 
So there's a lot to unpack there. What I will answer is in Wisconsin, let me give you the example of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. They've been outstanding. Ben Wickler, who used to be the political director for Move On, is now the state party chair. He has done an extraordinary job. Those resources are going all over the state to all kinds of people. There is no restriction on your political ideology because Ben is himself quite a strong progressive. You know, I just think it's a little unfair to take one swipe at everything. I think you have to get to if your local party is doing that, then don't give to that local party. But, you know, in Wisconsin, we're very fortunate. We've got a party that's investing in all sorts of things. And I just want to make sure that we're fair and don't just put too general of a stripe out there. Morris in Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. What this Trojan horse is doing in the White House, right, what he is doing is he is spreading this virus. It is criminal. Somebody got to stop him. Maybe your health person can issue something to the sheriff, say when that caravan comes, he can't come in here no more. We got to help. We definitely are at war. If this fool, the Trojan horse in the White House, if he refuses to leave office, can the Speaker of the House then employ what is called inherent contempt then at that time? Because I believe Congress has got most of the oversight. Part of the problem is we don't have the Senate yet to do some of the things we want to. Inherent contempt is one of the things that the Progressive Caucus is going to be pushing going into the next Congress to strengthen because it's been so abused by this president, period, that we need to be able to use it and be effective. But I do think that there are plenty of safeguards right now in place. People are ready for many contingencies on Election Day. However, the single best thing we can do is just deliver a big result nationally, and if we do that, We won't need any of those contingencies because all of Donald Trump's ways of trying to do mischief are going to be blown out of the waters. Les, in Glendale, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. The attorney general and the Supreme Court judges have become so politicized. What do you guys think about making those determined by the voters instead of appointments by the president? Yeah, I'll tell you, that's a big debate because you have it done differently in different states. Michigan, you run on your political party, I believe, to be in the Supreme Court. Wisconsin, completely nonpartisan, so it's already very different. I think electing the national Supreme Court would be very difficult, honestly, you know, with all the packing of the court that's happened under the Trump administration and in this Republican Senate. Those discussions will happen, I think, in the next Congress. Biden has said he's going to put together a commission and wait six months. Can we wait six months? Honestly, I think the first six months, we're going to be doing, I think, a big infrastructure bill. We have to figure out how to get the vaccine or vaccines out for COVID. We want to pass HR1 because that'll help us pass everything else. If you can rein in the special interest in Washington, it may have to be the timeline because there are some really important pending items. I get it. Tyrone in Harlem, New York, you're on the air with Congress in Pocan. Thank you. Vicious cycle. Are we ready to get out of this vicious cycle? I heard what you said about us throwing up um, rules and regulations about stopping the Democratic Party from doing what we need to do to make this country back right. Do you think that there's enough Democratic legislators are providing that we win the presidency in the Senate that are willing to take the bull by the horn? Stop playing these wishy-washy games with these Republicans. We know what we're up against. We cannot afford to play games with these people. You just said about the bad heart and this health crisis that we're going through. That's only that's mainly because we allow these people to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And we're the adults in the room. We have to be that. Do you think we can be the adults in the room against this Republican childhood adolescent acting? Yeah, Tyrone, you bring up a great point. It's harder when you're in the minority, right, because you don't have the powers of the majority. But if we're in the majority in the Senate, 
if they don't do everything they can do to move an agenda forward, we have to make them, right? It's going to have to come from the grassroots. It's going to have to be a strong message because there are some that love to play this game that, you know, they get along with everyone as long as the special interest checks keep flowing. We can't let them stop an agenda that's important, especially after four years of Donald Trump. So um, the real hard work is going to begin on November 4th, honestly, to make sure that we can get the best possible big and bold legislation out in the next Congress. But um, I think we're up for it. People have been amazing during this election cycle. If we keep that level of activism up and, and hold, including Democrats, uh, accountable, then I think we can have the, the type of legislation that you and I want, Tyrone. Lloyd in Framingham, Massachusetts, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. As a past staffer on the Democratic side back in the 70s and 80s, I worked for Florio and Torricelli, both from New Jersey. My question is, once the Democrats regain the Senate, going to start talking about cutting the military budget of this country like we used to and have, but we haven't been doing that over the past 15, 20 years. It's time to cut that dramatically. Lloyd, uh, music to my ears. Barbara Lee and I just started in the House a Defense Spending Reduction Caucus. For the last 10 years, we've been living under the sequester, which tied the discretionary spending for defense and non-defense together. So if you cut defense, you cut health care and education and other things. It made no sense. It was done before I was in Congress, but it ends this year. So next year, we no longer have that. And we've had a 20% increase just in the last four years in defense spending at a time of relative peace. There's no question that we should do that. And it's interesting that you mentioned, because every time I tell people about why I think there's so much more we can do to work on this, is I remember the 70s and 80s when there were so many great messages out there about defense spending that the public had. We need to do that again, because the last decade we haven't seen it because of that sequester law. So we're building that right now. If you follow my social media, we're putting out every week now messages about defense spending, and we're going to keep doing that. So is Barbara Lee. So are many of the groups that we're working with. So there is a real serious effort to make in the next budget to right-size defense spending, and it's going to be work to do that. We're facing opposition. You know, Joe Biden has not said some of the strongest things uh, in that area. Also, the chair of the Democrat chair of the House Armed Services Committee, we're going to have to convince. So thanks for bringing it up, because we are working on this right now. Time to bring back Wisconsin Senator Proxmire's Golden Fleece Award, eh? We have talked about this, Tom. You're exactly where I'm at. <laughs> That's great. Congress and Pocan, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. Yeah, thank you, as always. Take care. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 